Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening. Come on in. Look, we've got a big show tonight. Three tales by three masters. So shake off the weather, grab something to drink, settle down, and I promise I will not blather this week. One thing, and this will be it, I wanted to mention this last week. The Stoker Award represents a compromise of sorts. When the awards were instituted back in 1987, pretty much immediately after the HWA was incorporated, quite a few of the members were against the whole idea of giving awards, the feeling being that the organization was to have been cooperative, not competitive. Had I been a member in 1987, I would have been on that side of the issue. Writers face too damn much competition in the workplace to have to deal with any more of it at home. So, at all events, the matter was resolved by the decision to give the award that became the Stokers, not for the best of whatever it happened to be, but for superior achievement in that form. Okay? All right. As mentioned, this is a big show. The first story tonight is George Saunders' Home. George Saunders is a best-selling American author. He writes short stories, essays, novellas, children's books. He's appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, McSweeney's, Gentleman's Quarterly. His first story collection, Civil War Land in Bad Decline, was a finalist for the 1996 Penn Hemingway Award. In 2006, Saunders received a MacArthur Fellowship. In 2007, he won the World Fantasy Award for his short story, Calm, calm. His story collection 
In Persuasion Nation was a finalist for the Story Prize in 2007. His Stoker-nominated story, Home, first appeared in the June 13th edition of The New Yorker. And here it is. Home by George Saunders Like in the old days, I came out of the dry creek bed behind the house and did my little tap on the kitchen window. Get in here, you, Ma said. Inside were piles of newspapers on the stove and piles of magazines on the stairs and a big wad of hangers sticking out of the broken oven. All of that was as usual. New was a water stain the shape of a cat head on the wall above the fridge and the old orange rug rolled up halfway. Still ain't no beeping cleaning lady, Ma said. I looked at her funny. Beeping, I said. Beep you, she said. They've been on my case at work. It was true Ma had a pretty good potty mouth and was working at a church now, so. We stood there looking at each other. Then some guy came tromping down the stairs, older than Ma even, in just boxers and hiking boots and a winter cap, long ponytail hanging out the back. Who's this? he said. My son, Ma said shyly. Mikey, this is Harris. What's your worst thing you ever did over there? Harris said. What happened to Alberto? I said. Alberto flew the coop, Ma said. Alberto showed his ass, Harris said. I hold nothing against that beeper, Ma said. I hold a lot against that fucker, Harris said, including he owes me ten bucks. Harris ain't dealing with his potty mouth, Ma said. She's only doing it because of work, Harris explained. Harris don't work, Ma said. Well, if I did work, it wouldn't be at a place that tells me how I can talk, Harris said. It would be at a place that lets me talk how I like, a place that accepts me for who I am. That's the kind of place I'd be willing to work. There ain't many of that kind of place, Ma said. Places that let me talk how I want, Harris said, or places that accept me for who I am. Places you'd be willing to work, Ma said. How long is he staying, Harris said. Long as he wants, Ma said. My house is your house, Harris said to me. It ain't your house, Ma said. Give the kids some food at least, Harris said. I will, but it ain't your idea, Ma said, and shoot us out of the kitchen. Great lady, Harris said. Had my eyes on her for years. Then Alberto split. That I don't get. You got a great lady in your life. The lady gets sick, you split? Ma's sick, I said. She didn't tell you, he said. He grimaced, made his hand into a fist, put it upside his head. Lump, he said. But you didn't hear it from me. Ma was singing now in the kitchen. I hope you're at least making bacon, Harris called out. A kid comes home, deserves some friggin' bacon. Why not stay out of it, Ma called back. You just met him. I love him like my own son, Harris said. What a ridiculous statement, Ma said. You hate your son. I hate both my sons, Harris said. And you'd hate your daughter if you ever met her, Ma said. Harris beamed, as if touched that Ma knew him well enough to know he would inevitably hate any child he fathered. Ma came in with some bacon and eggs on a saucer. Might be a hair in it, 
she said. Lately, it's like I'm beeping shedding. You're certainly welcome, Harris said. You didn't beeping do nothing, Ma said. Don't take credit. Go in there and do the dishes. That would help. I can't do dishes, and you know that, Harris said, on account of my rash. He gets a rash from water, Ma said. Ask him why he can't dry. On account of my back, Harris said. He's the king of if, Ma said. What he ain't is king of actually do. Soon as he leaves, I'll show you what I'm king of, Harris said. Oh, Harris, that is too much. That is truly disgusting, Ma said. Harris raised both hands over his head like, Winner and still champ! We'll put you in your old room, Ma said. On my bed was a hunting bow and a purple Halloween cape with a built-in ghost face. That's Harris's beep, Ma said. Ma, I said, Harris told me. I made my hand into a fist, put it upside my head. She gave me a blank look. Or maybe I didn't understand him right, I said. Lump? He said you've got a... Or maybe he's a big beeping liar, she said. He makes up crazy beep about me all the time. It's like his hobby. He told the mailman I had a fake leg. He told Eileen at the deli one of my eyes was glass. He told the guy at the hardware I get fainting dealies and froth at the mouth whenever I get mad. Now that guy's always rushing me out of there. To show how fine she was, Ma did a jumping jack. Harris was clomping upstairs. I won't tell you told about the lump, Ma said. You don't tell I told about him being a liar. Now this was starting to seem like the old days. Ma, I said, where are Renee and Ryan living? Uh, Ma said. They got a sweet place over there, Harris said, rolling in the dough. I'm not sure that's the best idea, Ma said. Your Ma thinks Ryan's a hitter, Harris said. Ryan is a hitter, Ma said. I can always tell a hitter. He hits, I said. He hits Renee. You didn't hear it from me, Ma said. He better not start hitting that baby, Harris said. Sweet little Martiny. Kid's super cute. Although what the beep kind of name is that, Ma said. I told Renee that. I said that. Is that a boy or a girl name, Harris said. What the beep are you talking about, Ma said. You seen it. You held it. Looks like an elf, Harris said. But girl or boy elf, Ma said. Watch, he really don't know. Well, it was wearing green, Harris said. So that don't help me. Think, Ma said. What did we buy it? You'd think I'd know boy or girl, Harris said. It being my freaking grandkid. It ain't your grandkid, Ma said. We bought it a boat. A boat could be for boys or girls, Harris said. Don't be prejudiced. A girl can love a boat just like a boy can love a doll or a bra. Well, we didn't buy it a doll or a bra, Ma said. We bought it a boat. I went downstairs, got the phone book. Renee and Ryan lived over on Lincoln. 27 Lincoln. 27 Lincoln was in the good part of town. I couldn't believe the house. Couldn't believe the turrets. The back gate was redwood and opened so smooth, like the hinge was hydraulic. 
Couldn't believe the yard. I squatted in some bushes by a screened-in porch. Inside, some people were talking. Renee, Ryan, Ryan's parents, sounded like. Ryan's parents had sonorous, confident voices that seemed to have been fabricated out of previous, less sonorous, confident voices by means of sudden money. "'Say what you will about Lon Brewster,' Ryan's dad said. "'But Lon came out and retrieved me from Feldspar that time I had a flat. "'In that ridiculous broiling heat,' Ryan's mom said. "'And not a word of complaint,' Ryan's dad said. "'A completely charming person. "'Almost as charming, or so you told me, as the Flemings,' she said. "'And the Flemings are awfully charming,' he said. "'And the good they do,' she said. They flew a plane load of babies over here. Russian babies, he said, with hair lips. Soon as the babies arrived, they were whisked into operating rooms all around the country, she said. And who paid? The Flemings, he said. Didn't they also set aside some money for college, she said, for the Russians? Those kids went from being disabled in a collapsing nation to being set for life in the greatest country in the world, he said. And who did this? A corporation? The government? One private couple, she said. A truly visionary pair of folks, he said. There was a long, admiring pause. Although you'd never know it by how harshly he speaks to her, she said. Well, she can be awfully harsh with him as well, he said. Sometimes it's just him being harsh with her and her being harsh right back, she said. It's like the chicken or the egg, he said. Only with harshness, she said. Still, you can't help but love the Flemings, he said. We should be so wonderful, she said. When was the last time we rescued a Russian baby? Well, we do all right, he said. We can't afford to fly a bunch of Russian babies over here, but I think in our own way we do just fine. We can't even fly over one Russian, she said. Even a Canadian baby with a hair lip would be beyond our means. We could probably drive up there and pick one up, he said. But then what? We can't afford the surgery and we can't afford the college, so the baby's just sitting here, in America instead of Canada, still with the lip issue. Did we tell you, kids, she said, we're adding five shops, five shops around the Tri-City area, each with a fountain. That's great, Mom. Ryan said. That is so great, Renee said. And maybe, if those five shops do well, we can open another three or four shops, and at that time, revisit the whole Russian hair lip issue, Ryan's father said. You guys continue to amaze, Ryan said. Renee stepped out with the baby. I'm going to step out with the baby, she said. The baby had taken its toll. Renee seemed wider, less peppy. Also, paler, like someone had run a color-leaching beam over her face and hair. The baby did look like an elf. The elf baby looked at a bird, pointed at the bird. Bird, Renee said. The elf baby looked at their insane pool. For swimming, Renee said. But not yet. Not yet, right? The elf baby looked at the sky. Clouds, Renee said. Clouds make rain. It was like the baby was demanding with its eyes. 
Hurry up. Tell me what all this shit is so I can master it. Open a few shops. The baby looked at me. Renee nearly dropped the baby. Mikey, Mikey, holy shit, she said. Then she seemed to remember something and hustled back to the porch door. Rye, she called. Rye King, can you come get the Mart Heart? Ryan took the baby. Love you, I heard him say. Love you more, she said. Then she came back. No baby. I call him Rye King, she said, blushing. I heard that, I said. Mikey, she said. Did you do it? Can I come in, I said. Not today, she said. Tomorrow. No, Thursday. His folks leave Wednesday. Come over Thursday. We'll hash it out. Hash what out, I said. Whether you can come in, she said. I didn't realize that was a question, I said. Did you, she said, do it? Ryan seems nice, I said. Oh, God, she said, literally the nicest human being I have ever known. Except when he's hitting, I said. When what, she said. Ma told me, I said. Told you what, she said, that Ryan hits? Hits me? Ma said that? Don't tell her I told, I said, a little panicked as of old. Ma's deranged, she said. Ma's out of her friggin' mind. Ma would say that. You know who's gonna get hit? Ma, by me. Why didn't you write me about Ma, I said. What about her, she said suspiciously. She's sick, I said. She told you, she said. I made a fist and held it upside my head. What's that, she said. A lump, I said. Ma doesn't have a lump, she said. She's got a fucked up heart. Who told you she's got a lump? Harris, I said. Oh, Harris, perfect, she said. Inside the house, the baby started crying. Go, Renee said. We'll talk Thursday. But first, she took my face in her hands and turned my head so I was looking in the window at Ryan, who was heating a bottle at the kitchen sink. Does that look like a hitter, she said. No, I said, and it didn't, not at all. Jesus, I said, does anybody tell the truth around here? I do, she said. You do. I looked at her, and for a minute she was eight and I was ten, and we were hiding in the doghouse while Ma and Dad and Aunt Tony, high on mushrooms, trashed the patio. Mikey, she said, I need to know, did you do it? I jerked my face out of her hands, turned, went. Go see your own wife, doofus, she shouts after me. Go see your own babies. Ma was on the front lawn, screaming at this low-slung fat guy. Harris was looming in the background, now and then hitting or kicking something to show how scary he could get when enraged. This is my son, Ma said who served, who just came home, and this is how you do us? I'm grateful for your service, the man said to me. Harris kicked the metal garbage can. Will you please tell him to stop doing that, the man said. He has no control over me when I'm mad, Harris said. No one does. Do you think I like this, the man said. She hasn't paid rent in four months. Three, Ma said. This is how you treat the family of a hero, Harris said. 
He's over there fighting, and you're over here abusing his mother? Friend, excuse me. I'm not abusing, the man said. This is evicting. If she'd paid her rent and I was evicting, that would be abusing. And here I work for a beeping church, Ma shouted. The man, though low-slung and fat, was admirably bold. He went inside the house and came out carrying the TV with a bored look on his face, like it was his TV and he preferred it in the yard. No, I said. I appreciate your service, he said. I took him by the shirt. I was, by this time, good at taking people by their shirts, looking them in the eye, speaking directly. Whose house is this, I said. Mine, he said. I put a foot behind him, dropped him on the grass. Go easy, Harris said. That was easy, I said, and carried the TV back inside. That night, the sheriff arrived with some movers who emptied the house onto the lawn. I saw them coming and went out the back door and washed it off from High Street, sitting in the deer stand behind the nestings. Ma was out there, head in hands, weaving in and out of her heaped-up crap. It was both melodramatic and not. I mean, when Ma feels something deeply, that's what she does, melodrama, which makes it, I guess, not melodrama? Something had been happening to me lately, where a plan would start flowing directly into my hands and feet. When that happened, I knew to trust it. My face would get hot, and I'd feel sort of like, go, go, go. It had served me well, mostly. Now the plan flowing down was, grab Ma, push her inside, make her sit, round up Harris, make him sit, torch the place, or at least make the first motions of torching the place to get their attention, make them act their age. I flew down the hill, pushed Ma inside, sat her on the stairs, grabbed Harris by the shirt, put my foot behind him, dropped him to the floor, then held a match to the carpet on the stairs, and, once it started burning, raised a finger, like, quiet, through me runs the power of recent dark experience. They were both so scared they weren't talking at all, which made me feel the kind of shame you know you're not going to cure by saying sorry, and when the only thing to do is go out, get more shame. I stomped the carpet fire out and went over to Gleason Street, where Joy and the babies were living with asshole. What a kick in the head. Their place was even nicer than Renee's. The house was dark. There were three cars in the driveway, which meant that they were all home and in bed. I stood thinking about that a bit, then walked back downtown and into a store. I guess it was a store, although I couldn't tell what they were selling. On yellow counters lit from within were these heavy blue plastic tags. I picked one up. On it was the word, Mevox Max. What is it? I said. It's more like what it's for, is how I'd say it, the kid said. What's it for? I said. Actually, he said, this is probably more the one for you. He handed me an identical tag, but with the word Mevox Min on it. Another kid came up with espresso and cookies. I put down the Mevox Min tag 
and held up the Mevox Max tag. How much? I said. You mean money? He said. What does it do? I said. Well, if you're asking is it data repository or information hierarchy domain? He said. The answer to that would be yes and no. They were sweet. Not a line on their faces. When I say they were kids, I mean they were about my age. I've been away a long time, I said. Welcome back, the first kid said. Where were you? The second one said. At the war, I said, in the most insulting voice I could muster. Maybe you've heard of it? I have, the first one said respectfully. Thank you for your service. Which one? The second one said. Aren't there two? Didn't they just call one off? The first one said. My cousin's there, the second said. At one of them. At least I think he is. I know he was supposed to go. We were never that close. Anyway, thanks, the first one said, and put out his hand, and I shook it. I wasn't for it, the second one said, but I know that wasn't your deal. Well, I said, it kind of was. You weren't for it, or you aren't for it, the first said to the second. Both, the second one said. Although, is it still going? Which one, the first one said. Is the one you were at still going, the second one asked me. Yes, I said. Better or worse, do you think, the first one said. Like, in your view, are we winning? Oh, what am I doing? I don't actually care. That's what's so funny about it. Anyway, the second one said, and held out his hand, and I shook it. They were so nice and accepting and unsuspicious. They were so for me that I walked out smiling and was about a block away before I realized I was still holding Mevox Max. I got under a street light and had a look. It seemed like just a plastic tag. Like if you wanted Mevox Max, you handed in that tag and someone went and got Mevox Max for you. Whatever it was. Asshole answered the door. His actual name was Evan. We'd gone to school together. I had a vague memory of him in an Indian headdress racing down a hallway. Mike, he said. Can I come in? I said. I think I have to say no to that, he said. I'd like to see the kids, I said. Past midnight, he said. I had a pretty good idea he was lying. Were stores open past midnight? Still, the moon was high and there was something moist and sad in the air that seemed to be saying, well, it's not early. Tomorrow, I said. Would that be okay for you, he said, after I get home from work? I saw we agreed to play it reasonable. One way we were playing it reasonable was saying everything like a question. Around six, I said. Does six work for you, he said. The weird part was I never actually seen the two of them together. The wife back there in his bed could have been someone else entirely. I know this isn't easy, he said. You fucked me, I said. I would respectfully disagree with that, he said. No doubt, I said. I didn't fuck you, and she didn't, he said. It was a challenging situation for all involved. More challenging for some than for others, I said. 
Would you give me that much? Are we being honest, he said, or tiptoeing around conflict? Honest, I said, and his face did this thing that, for a minute, made me like him again. It was hard for me, because I felt like a shit, he said. It was hard for her, because she felt like a shit. It was hard for us, because while feeling like shits, we were also feeling all the other things we were feeling, which, I assure you, were and are as real as anything, a total blessing, if I can say it that way. At that point, I started feeling like a chump. Like I was being held down by a bunch of guys so another guy could come over and put his new-age fist up my ass while explaining that having his fist up my ass was far from his first choice and was actually making him feel conflicted. Six o'clock, I said. Six o'clock's perfect, he said. Luckily, I'm on flex time. You don't need to be here, I said. If you were me and I were you, would you maybe feel you might somewhat need to be here, he said. One car was a sob, and one an Escalade, and the third a newer sob, with two baby seats in it and a stuffed clown I was not familiar with. Three cars for two grown-ups, I thought. What a country! What a couple of selfish dicks my wife and her new husband were! I could see that, over the years, my babies— would slowly transform into selfish dick babies, then selfish dick toddlers, kids, teenagers, and adults, with me all the time skulking around like some unclean suspect uncle. That part of town was full of castles. Inside one, a couple was embracing. Inside another, a woman had nine million little Christmas houses out on a table like she was taking inventory. Across the river, the castles got smaller. By our part of town, the houses were like peasant huts. Inside one peasant hut were five kids standing perfectly still on the back of a couch. Then they all leapt off at once, and their dogs went crazy. Ma's house was empty. Ma and Harris were sitting on the floor in the living room making phone calls, trying to find somewhere to go. The sheriff was due back first thing in the morning. "'What time is it?' I said. Ma looked up at where the clock used to be. "'The clock's on the sidewalk,' she said. I went out. The clock was under a coat. It was nine. Evan had fucked me. I considered going back, demanding to see the kids. But by the time I got there, it would be ten, and he'd still have a decent point, R.E., the lateness of the hour. The sheriff walked in. Don't get up, he said to Ma. Ma got up. Get up, he said to me. I stayed sitting. You the one who threw down Mr. Cleese, the sheriff said. He just got back from the war, Ma said. Thank you for your service, the sheriff said. Might I ask you to refrain from throwing people down in the future? He also threw me down, Harris said. My thing is, I don't want to go around arresting veterans, the sheriff said. I myself am a veteran, so if you help me by not throwing anyone else down, I'll help you by not arresting you. Deal? He was also going to burn the house down, Ma said. I wouldn't recommend burning anything down, the sheriff said. 
He ain't himself, Ma said. I mean, look at him. The sheriff had never seen me before, but it was like admitting he had no basis for assessing how I looked would have been a professional embarrassment. He does look tired, the sheriff said. Plenty strong, though, Harris said. Threw me right down. Where are you folks off to tomorrow, the sheriff said. Suggestions, Ma said. A friend, a family member, the sheriff said. Renee's, I said. Failing that, the shelter on Friston, the sheriff said. One thing I am not doing is going to Renee's, Ma said. Everyone in that house is too high and mighty. They already think of us as low. Well, we are low, Harris said, compared to them. The other thing I am not doing is going to any beeping shelter, Ma said. They got crabs at shelters. When we first started dating, I had crabs from that shelter, Harris said helpfully. I'm sorry this is happening, the sheriff said. Everything's backward and inverted. I'll say, Ma said. Here I work for a church and my son's a hero with a silver star. Dragged a marine out by the beeping foot. We got the letter. And where am I? On the street. The sheriff had switched off and was making his break for the door to get back to whatever was real to him. Find some place to live, folks, he advised genially as he left. Harris and I dragged two mattresses back inside. They still had the sheets and blankets on and all, but the sheets had grass stains and the pillows smelled like mud. Then we slept a long night in the bare house. In the morning, Ma called some ladies she'd known as a young mother, but one had a disc out and another had cancer and a third had twins who'd just been diagnosed manic-depressive. In the light of day, Harris braved up again. So, this court-martial thing, he said, was that the worst thing you ever did, or were there worse things which you did but just didn't get caught? They cleared him of that, Ma said tersely. Well, they cleared me of breaking and entering that time, Harris said. Anyways, how is this any of your business, Ma said. Probably he wants to talk, Harris said. Get some air in there, good for the soul. Look at his face, Hare. Ma said. Harris looked at my face. Sorry I mentioned it, he said. Then the sheriff was back. He made me and Harris drag the mattresses out. On the porch, we watched him padlock the door. Eighteen years you have been my dear home, Ma said, possibly imitating some Sioux from a movie. You're going to want to get a van over here, the sheriff said. My son served in the war, Ma said, and look how you're doing me. I'm the same guy that was here yesterday, the sheriff said, and for some reason framed his face with his hands. Remember me? You told me that already. I thanked him for his service. Call a van, or your shit's going to the dump. See how they treat a lady works at a church, Ma said. Ma and Harris picked up their crap, found a suitcase, filled the suitcase with clothes. Then we drove to Renee's. My feeling was, oh, this will be funny. Although, yes and no. That was just one of my feelings. Another was, oh, Ma, I remember when you were young, 
and wore your hair in braids, and I would have died to see you sink so low. Another was, You crazy old broad, you narked me out last night. What was up with that? Another was, Mom, Mommy, let me kneel at your feet and tell you what me and Smelton and Ricky G did at Al Raz, and then you can stroke my hair and tell me anybody would have done the exact same thing. As we crossed the Roll Creek Bridge, I could see that Ma was feeling, Just let that Renee deny me. I will hand that little beep her beeping beep on a platter. And then, bango, by the time we got on the far side and the air had gone from river cool to regular again, her face had changed to... Oh, God, if Renee denies me in front of Ryan's parents and they once again find me trash, I will die. I will simply die. Renee did deny her in front of Ryan's parents, who did find her trash, but she didn't die. You should have seen their faces as we walked in. Renee looked stricken. Ryan looked stricken. Ryan's mom and dad were trying so hard not to look stricken that they kept knocking things over. A vase went down as Ryan's dad blundered forward trying to look chipper, welcoming. Ryan's mom lurched into a painting and ended up holding it in her crossed red-sweatered arms. "'Is this the baby?' I said. Ma turned on me again. "'What do you think it is?' she said. "'A midget that can't talk?' "'This is Marty. yes,' Renee said." holding the baby out to me. Ryan cleared his throat, shot Renee a look like, I thought we'd discussed this, love muffin. Renee changed the baby's course, swerved it up, like if she held it up high enough, that would negate the need for me to take it from her, it being so close to the overhead light and all. Which hurt. Fuck it, I said. What do you think I'm going to do? Please don't say fuck in our home, Ryan said. Please don't tell my son what the beep he can beeping say, Ma said. Him being in the war and all. Thank you for your service, Ryan's dad said. We can easily go to a hotel, Ryan's mom said. You're not going to any hotel, Mom, Ryan said. They can go to a motel. We're not going to a motel, Ma said. You can easily go to a motel, Mother. You love a good motel. Renee said, especially when we're paying. Even Harris was nervous. Ah, hotel sounds lovely, he said. It's been many a day since I reclined in a nice place of that nature as a hotel. You'd send your mother, who works for a church, along with your brother, a Silver Star hero, just home from the war, to some flea bag? Ma said. Yes, Renee said. Can I at least hold the baby? I said, not on my watch, Ryan said. Jane and I would like you to know how much we supported and still do support your mission, Ryan's father said. A lot of people don't know how many schools you fellows built over there, Ryan's mother said. People tend to focus on the negative, Ryan's dad said. What's that proverb, Ryan's mother said. To make something or other, you have to break a lot of something or other? I think he could hold the baby, Renee said. I mean, we're standing right here. Ryan winced, shook his head. 
The baby writhed like it too believed its fate was being decided. Having all these people think I was going to hurt the baby made me imagine hurting the baby. Did imagining hurting the baby mean that I would hurt the baby? Did I want to hurt the baby? No, Jesus. But did the fact that I had no intention of hurting the baby mean that I wouldn't, when push come to shove, hurt the baby? Had I, in the recent past, had the experience of having no intention of doing activity A, then suddenly finding myself right in the middle of doing activity A? I don't want to hold the baby, I said. I appreciate that, Ryan said. That's cool of you. I want to hold this pitcher, I said, and picked up a pitcher and held it like a baby, with the lemonade spilling out of it, and once the lemonade was pooling nicely on the hardwood floor, I spiked the pitcher down. You really hurt my feelings, I said, then was out on the sidewalk, walking fast. Then was back at that store. Two different guys were there, even younger than the earlier two. They might have been high schoolers. I handed over the Mevox Max tag. Oh, shit! Snap! The one guy said. We were wondering where that was. We were about to call it in, the other guy said, bringing over espresso and cookies. Is it valuable? I said. Ha! Oh, boy! The first one said, and got some kind of special cloth from under the counter and dusted the tag off and put it back on display. What is it? I said. It's more like what it's for, is how I'd say it, the first guy said. What's it for? I said. This might be more in your line, he said, and handed me the Mevox Min tag. I've been away a long time, I said. Us too the second kid said. We just got out of the army, the first kid said. Then we all took turns saying where we'd been. Turned out me and the first guy had been in basically the same place. Wait, so you were at Al-Raz, I said? I was totally at Al-Raz, the first guy said. I was never in the shit, I admit it, the second guy said. Although I did once run over a dog with a forklift. I asked the first guy if he remembered the baby goat, the pocked wall, the crying toddler, the dark arched doorway, the doves that suddenly exploded out from under that peeling gray cave. I wasn't over by that, he said. I was more by the river and the upside-down boat and that little family all in red that kept turning up wherever you looked. I knew exactly where he'd been. It was unbelievable how many times, pre- and post-exploding doves, I'd caught sight down by the river of some imploring or crouching or fleeing figure in red. It ended up cool with that dog, though, the second guy said. He lived and all. By the time I left, he'd be like riding right up alongside me in the forklift. A family of nine Indian Americans came in, and the second guy went over to them with the espresso and cookies. Al-Raz, wow, I said, in an exploratory way. For me, the first guy said, Al-Raz was the worst day of the whole deal. Yes, me too, exactly, I said. I fucked up big time in Al-Raz, he said. Suddenly I found I couldn't breathe. 
My boy, Melvin, he said, got a chunk of shrapnel right in the groin because of me. I waited too long to call it in. There was this, like, lady party going on nearby, about 15 gals in this corner store and kids with them. So I waited. It was too bad for Melvin, for Melvin's groin. Now he was waiting for me to tell the fucked up thing I'd done. I put down the Mevox Min, picked it up, put it down. Melvin's okay, though, he said, and did a little two-finger tap on his own groin. He's home, you know, in grad school. He's fucking, apparently. Glad to hear it, I said. Probably he even sometimes rides up alongside you in the forklift. Sorry, he said. I looked at the clock on the wall. It didn't seem to have any hands. It was just a moving pattern of yellow and white. Do you know what time it is? I said. The guy looked up at the clock. Six, he said. Out on the street, I found a payphone and called Renee. I'm sorry, I said. Sorry about the picture. Yeah, well she said in her non-fancy voice. You're going to buy me a new one. I could hear she was trying to make up. No, I said, I don't think I'll be doing that. Where are you, Mikey? She said. Nowhere, I said. Where are you going? She said. Home, I said, and hung up. Coming up Gleason, I had that feeling. My hands and feet didn't know exactly what they wanted, but they were trending toward push past whatever, whoever blocks you. Get inside, start wrecking shit by throwing it around, shout out whatever's in your mind, see what happens. I was on a, like, shame slide. You know what I mean? Once, back in high school, this guy paid me to clean some gunk out of his pond. You snagged the gunk with a rake, then rake hurled it. At one point, the top of my rake flew into the gunk pile. When I went to retrieve it, there were like a million tadpoles, dead and dying, at whatever age they are when they've got those swollen bellies like little pregnant ladies. What the dead and dying had in common was their tender white underbellies had been torn open by the gunk suddenly crashing down on them from on high. The difference was, the dying were the ones doing the mad, fear gesticulating. I tried to save a few, but they were so tender all I did by handling them was torture them worse. Maybe someone else could have said to the guy, Uh, I have to stop now. I feel bad for killing so many tadpoles. But I couldn't. So I kept on rake hurling. With each rake hurl, I thought, I'm making more bloody bellies. The fact that I kept rake hurling started making me mad at the frogs. It was like either A, I was a terrible guy who was knowingly doing this rotten thing over and over, or B, it wasn't so rotten really, just normal. And the way to confirm that it was normal was to keep doing it over and over. Years later, at Al-Raz, it was a familiar feeling. Here was the house. Here was the house where they cooked, laughed, fucked. Here was the house that, in the future, when my name came up, would get all hushed. And Joy would be like, 
Although Evan is no, not your real daddy, me and daddy Evan feel you don't need to be around daddy Mike all that much. Because what me and daddy Evan really care about is you two growing up strong and healthy. And sometimes mommies and daddies need to make a special atmosphere in which that can happen. I looked for the three cars in the driveway. Three cars meant all home. Did I want all home? I did. I wanted all, even the babies, to see and participate and be sorry for what had happened to me. But instead of three cars in the driveway, there were five. Evan was on the porch as expected. Also on the porch were Joy, plus two strollers, plus Ma, plus Harris, plus Ryan. Renee was trotting all awkward up the driveway, trailed by Ryan's mom, pressing a handkerchief to her forehead, and Ryan's dad bringing up the rear due to a limp I hadn't noticed before. You, I thought, you jokers, you nutty fuckers, are all God sent to stop me? That is a riot. That is so fucking funny. What are you going to stop me with? Your girth? Your good intentions, your target genes, your years of living off the fat of the land, your belief that anything and everything can be fixed with talk, talk, endless yapping, hopeful talk. The contours of the coming disaster expanded to include the deaths of all present. My face got hot. I thought, go, go, go. Ma tried and failed to rise from the porch swing. Ryan helped her up by the elbow all courtly. Then suddenly something softened in me, maybe at the sight of Ma so weak, and I dropped my head and waded all docile into that crowd of know-nothings, thinking, okay, okay, you sent me, now bring me back. Find some way to bring me back, you fuckers, or you are the sorriest bunch of bastards the world has ever known. And thank you, George Saunders, for letting us have the use of your story. The narrator for Home, by the way, was Dave Robison. Uh, Dave's from Spring Hill, Tennessee. He began writing Curious George fan fiction at age eight. He moved into improv theater at age 10 and played trumpet at 12. Somewhere along the way, he picked up a degree in theater. Dave recently started pursuing story narration for podcasts and has voiced uh, stories for Scott Roach, uh, The Drabblecast, Starship Sofa, and now Tales to Terrify. That's great work, Dave. Hope to have more from you. Recently, Dave teamed up with writer-educator Brian Humphreys to create the Roundtable Podcast, a place where writers are invited to workshop their story ideas. Check it out at www.roundtablepodcast.com. Okay. Our second Stoker-nominated story for this week is by Ken Lilly Pates. Ken was first published in the comic book industry with the nearly simultaneous release of Monkey in a Wagon vs. Lemur on a Big Wheel and the horror series Elsinore. 
He says that they were really just to have a chance to voice his opinions on big issues like why lemurs and monkeys can't get along and how to avoid the apocalypse by attacking heaven and hell first. His fiction has appeared in various publications and soon will be seen in the HWA anthology Bloodlight 3, Aftertaste. Here is Ken Lily Pates's Hypergraphia. It was the book's fault, not yours. Something accidentally triggered. Just let it pass. They shouldn't have read it to you. That was a mistake. Given you more words. Therapy is trial and error. The trial is over, leaving only error. The dark wood of error. Stop thinking. Don't let the idea form. An idea, a story, was starting there. Kill it. Stop the words from forming. The ideas shouldn't be there. You are getting rid of them. Keep your words out. Close your eyes. Your head is spinning, but that is fine. Follow the swirling rotations in your mind, of your mind. The medication is there, inside your head. You can feel it. Be reassured. It is a presence in your body. Let it cradle you like a distant, remembered lover. One who has finally come back to you. Think of that. Think of her. Make the medicine into her. She is with you. She is now the warmth inside your head. Her voice is the spinning echoes. She is carrying you, holding you so tightly. You are safe like in a pleasant dream that will not be gone upon awakening. But don't awaken. Stay with her. Let her fight the idea forming. Stop your hand from tracing letters. Stop. Fine. Finish the word. Just the word. Then stop. All right. Give yourself a sentence, but nothing more. One line. No comma. No semicolons. Don't cheat yourself with your own tricks. He found it there, in the chaos of fallen leaves. Ignore the comma. The sentence is still short. You can feel the words burning into the fabric of your blanket. That is enough. Be content. Don't let the words have life. Stop thinking of the it that lies enigmatic in that line. Do not describe it. Move on. Think only of the drug swirl, of your lover's soothing voice. Think of anything but what the it is. Right now, it is nothing. It is nothing. Convince yourself of that. He found nothing there, in the chaos of fallen leaves. Forget the thought. It is finished now. You can leave it at that. Something simple. Just an empty mass of overlapping leaves. Swirled together by a slight chill wind. Nothing more. Swirled together like the medicine in your head. But now it is still. Still like your mind will one day be. Still like the promises they made you. Stop it. You are changing things. They are making promises still. Their promises are not still. They are always coming at you. Still. Quiet. Still. Still happening. 
never-ending, ceaseless like your need, you are deceiving yourself. Do not give in. Go back to motion. It was the stillness that got to you. That was a mistake. Do not think of calm as stationary. Go back to the gentle swells of motion, of drug flow movement in your veins. Think of your forgotten lover again, your remembered lover. Was that helping? Her hand moving over you, soothing you. He found her lying still in the chaos of fallen leaves. That is not it. Do not define it any more. You are falling into your own trap. Falling. Moving. Not still. Still is lifeless. She is lifeless, just as you found her. He found her still and lifeless form in the chaos of fallen leaves. Swirled leaves that had fallen to rest in the same way she had. Your fingers are moving again. Not etching, not tracking letters, tapping. Just a twitch, you say, but you know the truth. That is no tremor. The movement of your fingers, the rhythm, the intent. They are hitting imagined keys, adding yet another line. Changing nothing into something. Something. Something painful. Something you do not want to remember. You are doing this to yourself. Swirled leaves, now matted with blood, that had fallen to rest in the same way she had. Two commas. Another thought caught in between. The line can be read without it. Forget it is there. It is not needed. It still makes sense. It is still true. But there is more. There is now blood. There is always blood. Always. Whenever you write, it ends in sadness. No, that is not true. It begins with sadness. It ends with loss and pain. It ends in blood. Always. It begins with sadness. She was crying when she left. She had been crying a lot. The words that haunted him, the ones that had taken him over, had found their way to her as well. How could they not? They were everywhere. They had changed their life. He could not stop them. They had started in his head, but that was so long ago. Back in a peaceful time when they could still be together. He was there with her. But the words were always there too. Behind his eyes, she could see them when his gaze looked straight through her. They were not content with just his head. Not for very long. They wanted out. And maybe he did, for a time, leave them unanswered. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. To be with her in the beginning. Could that be why they grew? Maybe they wanted her gone in the same way she wanted him rid of them. Maybe that is why it seems so hurtful. Because he had somehow made a choice. Why did he need to think the way he did? To sometimes mumble to himself. To speak of horrific things. Things that scared her. When they had taken him, why did she want to feel that his words could at least be about her? She tried not to think like that. Tried for so long. Maybe that was just some false hope, some strained clinging. She would be content to be a villain, a monster, a victim in his words. But the words were not about her. They did not recognize her. To them she was a stranger. They took him away from her. She could only hope she still had some life somewhere in his head, be some light in his dead expression. But when the words had escaped his head and hit the page, it ended. Her hope and her feelings, if not her love. She couldn't ignore them or try to view them differently. She could no longer delude herself. She had lost him to them. They were more important than her. She knew it. And for a time he seemed happy. So distant. Like she was not even there. But happy. Happy without her. Happy with just the words. They consumed him and they consumed them, the then that should have been. It was no longer. It was erased. The words were not. They were indelible and there were just more and more of them. They began to escape the page. They began to control him. His fingers jerked in his sleep. What little sleep he got. She saw that his hands were always moving, even then. One night... As she lay there with him, but alone, she noticed the mark on the fabric that the constant rubbing from his twitching fingers had taken off the colour and she could see the letters. L-E-A-V-E -E. The words she had read before, the ones always spilling out of him, that now consumed their house, their life together. The ones that had left the confines of his laptop, of his notebooks that had spilled onto anything they could find. On letters, on bills, on the grocery notepad, onto the walls and etched into the wooden kitchen table. They had hurt her, all of them, because they took him away. Even in the beginning when he wrote, she knew he closed down from her, that he entered a place where she could not follow, 
somewhere that they could not be together. His writing had left her empty. Now it was filling her, because it was everywhere, because it had possessed him and taken everything from her. The words had hurt her so much, but not like this one word in the absence of colour on their bed comforter. The blanket they had picked out together when they first decided to join their lives. Leave. That word did more than hurt. It killed what was left inside her. For him. For herself, maybe. She got up from the bed, her bare feet landing on his scattered papers. The papers seemed cold. Cold as the words she knew would be written all over them. Tears came to her eyes. She went to the front hall closet. She pulled on her coat and stepped into a pair of shoes. The tears kept coming. They were like the words she had held back, the things she hadn't said, the feelings she had buried, the anger and hatred that had found its way into her, unwanted, but there, so very much there. The tears didn't stop. She could not contain them. She knew they were like his words. They would never run out. She left the house to go to their neighbours, her neighbours. He had never even met them the kindly older couple who had befriended her, who invited her for coffee and sugared biscuits when they saw she felt down, which seemed to be quite often. It must be hard living with a writer, they would say, and she would smile slightly, nervously, and nod, not yet ready to give up her pain to them, not so much of it. They tried to say things to comfort her, speaking quaint little expressions like, well, it's nothing that a cup of coffee and some cookies can't fix. So, in her grief, she would go to them. She knew they would be there for her. That they somehow thought of her as an older child. One that had grown up, but not. One that needed them for hope and cookies, still. There was a chill in the air. She felt it on her ankles, her sockless feet shoved into old shoes. She felt the bite of the wind on her face, too. It moved through her hair, lifting it and sticking strands to her wet face. She tried to brush them away as she moved across the road. She did not see the car that hit her. The impact crushed her small frame. Her body flew backwards and her head came down hard on the pavement by the curb. Before she closed her eyes that one last time, she saw the driver looking down at her, at the blood and horror that is only visible from a car's cracked headlight. Then everything was quiet and still, lifeless. The wind died down. The leaves that had been swirling in the eddies of the breeze soon ended their brief flight. Her body lay there, lifeless and still, in the chaos of fallen leaves. Swirling leaves that had fallen to rest in the same way she had, now matted with blood. You did not find her. What you were writing was a lie, always, still is. They found you. You were writing when they came to the door. She was not there to answer, like she had always been. There for you, to make sure that you were not interrupted, to give you your space, your time. They entered because she had not locked it. They found you writing, so lost in the words that you did not understand, you did not listen. She was gone. They told you about her body in the leaves. They tried to comfort you, but they couldn't reach you. 
For you, only the words existed. You did not understand what they were saying, all those words that seemed to make no sense. How could she be gone? They decided to get you some help. Now you have the hospital. You have the pills. You have these new words, their books and their remarks. They are supposed to make you better. But they aren't. They aren't. Your words are too powerful. Your words can summon gods. Whole cities breathe because of you. Their voices are your voice. Your words have freed them. No. You. No. You know that is not the truth. Your fingers have been moving, moving this whole time, writing another fiction, another lie. You must stop it. The drugs are not swirling, only your thoughts are. Listen to the thoughts, to their meaning, not to their words. Do not write them down, just hear them. You have been good here. They have been nice to you. They say things like, We think he is making some progress. You have tricked them. They do not monitor you now like they did at first. Constant checkups. When it is dark, only a night nurse checks in. Tells you that you are doing good. Horrible grammar. Good night, nurse. Good night. At night they strap you in. All is well. The restraints are not as tight. Not like that first night. Not so tight that your hands went numb. So tight that your fingers couldn't move. That they became lifeless. Impossibly still. And inside you were screaming. You could have no words, just screams, not without moving, not without your fingers bringing the letters to life, tracing their beauty or tapping out their forms. You can move now, but you don't need to write. You mustn't. Move the fingers. Move your hands. But do not write. Pull. Stretch. Contort. Free yourself. Free. Do not do that. Just get the hands loose. There you are. Slide them through the leather. Don't worry about how it rubs the skin raw. Now use that hand. Remove the other restraint. So easy. Just concentrate. Very good. Your fingers have spelt your misfortune. They have ruined your life. They can only bring one thing. They took her away from you. It must end. You don't need them anymore. They are poison, a prison. You can't stay here. You are not making progress. Look at your hands. They've ruined you, destroyed with the words they have created. They have stolen your world for other worlds, your life for lives that don't exist. You must break their hold on you. You can take away their power. Bring your fingers close to your face. See them for what they are. Now bite. Thank you, Ken. Ken says that hypergraphia is the only story he's written in one sitting from the moment the idea entered into his head. That is strangely appropriate, yeah? Yeah. Hypergraphia was first published in Issue 1 of The Uninvited. 
And thank you again, Simon Hildebrandt, for your narration of the story. Simon is another one of our regulars. I, I think his voice has contributed to almost every show we've done since we started. We'll soon have to give you a permanent spot here in the nook. Our last story for the evening and for this round of the Stoker nominees for 2011 is by Stephen King. You may have heard of him. Uh, Stephen King is a writer of just about any damn thing he wants to write. He was born in Portland, Maine in 1947 and made his first professional short story sale. It was the glass floor, by the way, to startling mystery stories in 1967. In the spring of 1973, Doubleday and Company accepted the novel Carrie for publication, and the rest is history. For most people, Stephen King is horror. If asked, people will say, oh, no, no, I don't like horror. If asked, do you read Stephen King, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, sure. And, of course, there is something to that. The range of King's work is so wide and the work itself so complex and deep, you really can't cover him with that single nickname. Well, here it is. Stephen King's Herman Woke is Still Alive. Nine die in horrific I-95 crash. Spontaneous mourning at scene by Ray Duggan. Fairfield, Maine. Less than six hours after a one-vehicle accident in the town of Fairfield took the lives of two adults and seven children, all under the age of ten, the morning has already begun. Bouquets of wildflowers and tin cans and insulated coffee mugs ring the scorched earth. A line of nine crosses has been placed in the picnic area of the adjacent rest area at mile 109, at the place where the bodies of the two youngest children were found. An anonymous sign, words spray-painted on a piece of sheet, has been erected. It reads, Angels gather here. 1. Brenda hits pick four for $2,700 and resists her first impulse. Instead of going out for a bottle of orange driver to celebrate with, she pays off the MasterCard, which has been maxed like forever, then calls Hertz and asks a question, then calls her friend Jasmine, who lives in North Berwick, and tells her about the pick four. Jasmine screams and says, "'Girl, you're rich!' "'If only,' Brenda explains how she paid off the credit card so she can rent a Chevy Express if she wants to. "'It's a van, seats nine. That's what the Hertz girl told her. "'We could get all the kids in there and drive up to Mars Hill, see your folks and mine, show off the grandchildren, squeeze them for a little more dough. What do you think?' Jasmine is dubious. The glorified shack her folks call home doesn't have room. She wouldn't want to stay with them, even if it did. She hates those two, with good reason, Brenda knows. Her own father broke Jasmine in at fifteen. Her mother knew what was going on and did nothing. When Jasmine went to her in tears, her ma said, "'You got nothing to worry about. He's had his nuts cut.' Jazz married Mitch Robichaud to get away from them, and now three men, four kids, and eight years later, she's on her own and on welfare, although she gets 16 hours a week at the roll-around, handing out skates, making change for the video arcade where the machines take only special tokens. They let her bring her two youngest 
Delight sleeps in the office, and Truth, her three-year-old, wanders around in the arcade, hitching his diapers. He doesn't get into too much trouble, although last year he got head lice, and the two women had to shave all his hair off. <laughs> How he howled. There's six hundred left over after I paid off the credit balance, Brenda says. Well, four hundred if you count the rental only, I don't, because I can put that on MasterCard. We could stay at the Red Roof, watch Homebox. It's free. We can get takeout from downstreet, and kids can swim in the pool. What do you say? From behind her comes yelling. Brenda raises her voice and screams, Freddy, you stop teasing your sister and give that back! Then, oh goody, their squabbling wakes up the baby. Either that or Freedom is messed in her diapers and awakened herself. Freedom always messes in her diapers. To Brenda, it seems like Free is making poop her life's work. Takes after her father that way. I suppose, Jasmine says, drawing suppose out to four syllables, maybe five. Come on, girl. Road trip. Get with the program. We take the bus down to the jet port and rent the van. Three hundred miles, we can be there in four hours. The girl says they can watch DVDs, Little Mermaid, and all that good stuff. Maybe I could get some of that government money from my ma before it's all gone. Jasmine says thoughtfully. Her brother Tommy died the year before in Afghanistan, IED. Her ma and dad got 80000 out of it. Her ma has promised her some, although not when the old man is in hearing distance of the phone. Of course, it may be gone already. Probably is. She knows Mr. Romance bought a Yamaha rice rocket, although what he wants with a thing like that at his age, Jasmine has no idea. And she knows things like government money are mostly a mirage. This is something... They both know. Every time you see bright stuff, somebody turns on the rain machine. The bright stuff is never color-fast. Come on, Brenda says. She has fallen in love with the idea of loading up the van with kids and her best, her only, friend from high school who ended up living just one town over. Both of them on their own. Seven kids between them. Too many lousy men in the rear view. But sometimes they still have a little fun. She hears a thunk sound. Freddy starts to scream. Gloria's whomped him in the eye with an action figure. Gloria, you stop that or I'll tear you a new one! Brenda screams. He won't give back my powder puff! Glory shrieks. And she starts to cry. Now they're all crying. Freddy, Gloria, and Freedom. And for a moment, grayness creeps over Brenda's vision. She's seen a lot of that grayness lately. Here they are in a three-room, third-floor apartment, no guy in the picture. Tim, the latest in her life, took off six months ago, living pretty much on noodles and Pepsi and that cheap ice cream they sell at Walmart. No air conditioning, no cable TV. She had a job at the Quick Flash store, but the company went busted, and now the store's on the run, and the manager hired some Taco Paco to do her job because Taco Paco can work 12, 14 hours a day, Taco Paco wears a do-rag on his head and a nasty little mustache on his upper lip, and he's never been pregnant. Taco Paco's job is to get girls pregnant. They fall for that little mustache, and then, boom, the line in the drugstore testing gadget turns blue, and here comes another one just like the other one. Brenda has personal experience. She tells people she knows who Freddy's father is, but she really doesn't. 
She had a few drunk nights when they all looked good, and really, come on, how's she supposed to look for a job anyway? She's got these kids. What's she supposed to do? Leave Freddy to mind glory and take freedom to the goddamn job interview? Sure, that'll work. What is there besides drive-up window girl at Mickey D's or the Booger King? Portland has a couple of strip clubs, but <laughs> wide loads like her don't get that kind of work. And everyone else is broke. She reminds herself... She hit the lottery. She reminds herself they could be in a couple of air-conditioned rooms tonight at the Red Roof 3, even. Why not? Things are turning around. Rennie? Her friend sounds more doubtful than ever. You still there? Yeah, she says. Come on, girl. I'm approved. The Hertz chick says the van is red. She lowers her voice and adds, You lucky color. Did you pay off the credit card online? How'd you do that? Jasmine knows what happened to Brenda's laptop. Freddy and Glory got fighting last month and knocked Brenda's laptop off the bed. It fell on the floor and broke. I used the one at the library. She says it the way she grew up in Mars Hill, saying it. Library. I had to wait a while to get on, but it's worth it. It's free. So, what do you say? Well, maybe we could get a bottle of Allen's, her friend says. Jasmine loves that Allen's coffee brandy. When she can get it. In truth, Jasmine loves anything when she can get it. Absolutely, Brenda says, and a bottle of driver for me, but I won't drink while I'm behind the wheel, Jazz. You can, but I'll wait. I have to keep my license. It's about all I got left. Can you really get any money out of your folks, do you think? Brenda tells herself that once they see the kids, assuming the kids could be bribed or intimidated into good behavior, she can. But not a word about the lottery, she says. No way, Jasmine says. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. They yuck at this one, an oldie, but a goodie. So, what do you think? I'll have to take Eddie and Rosellen out of school. BFD, Brenda says. So what do you think, girl? After a long pause in the other end, Jasmine says, Road trip! Road trip! Brenda hollers back. Then they are chanting it while the three kids bawl in Brenda's Sanford apartment, and at least one, maybe two, is bawling in Jasmine's North Berwick apartment. These are the fat women nobody wants to see when they're on the streets, the ones no guy wants to pick up in the bars unless the hour is late and the mood is drunk and there's nobody better in sight. What men think when they're drunk, Brenda and Jasmine both know this, is that thunder thighs are better than no thighs at all. They went to high school together in Mars Hill, and now they're downstate, and they help each other when they can. They are the fat women nobody wants to see. They have a litter of children between them, and they are chanting, Road trip! Road trip! like a couple of cheerleading fools. On a September morning, already hot at 8.30, this is the way things happen. It's never been any different. Two. So these two old poets, who were once lovers in Paris, have a picnic near the bathrooms. Phil Henried is 78 now, and Pauline Enslin is 75. They're both skinny. They both wear spectacles. Their hair, white and thin, blows in the breeze. They've paused at a rest area on I-95 near Fairfield, which is about 20 miles north of Augusta. The rest area building is barn board, and the adjacent bathrooms are brick. They're good-looking bathrooms, modest bathrooms. There's no odor. 
Phil, who lives in Maine and knows the rest area well, would never have proposed a picnic here in the summertime. When the traffic on the interstate swells with out-of-state vacationers, the Turnpike Authority brings in a line of plastic porta sands and the pleasant grassy area stinks like hell on New Year's Eve. But now the porta sands are in storage somewhere and the rest area is nice. Pauline puts a checkered cloth on the initial scarred picnic table standing in the shade of an old oak and anchors it with a wicker picnic basket against a slight warm breeze. From the basket she takes sandwiches, potato salad, melon wedges, and two slices of coconut custard pie. She also has a large glass bottle of red tea. Ice cubes clink cheerfully inside. "'If we were in Paris, we'd have wine,' Phil says." "'In Paris we never had another sixty miles to drive on the turnpike,' she replies. "'That tea is cold and it's fresh, and you'll have to make do.' "'It wasn't carping,' he says, and lays an arthritis-swollen hand over hers, which is also swollen, though marginally less so. "'This is a feast, my dear.' They smile into each other's used faces, although Phil has been married three times and has scattered five children behind him like confetti. Pauline has been married twice, no children, but lovers of both sexes in the dozens. They still have quite a lot between them, much more than a spark. <laughs> Phil is both surprised and not surprised. At his age, late, but not quite yet last call— you take what you can and are happy to get it. They are on their way to a poetry festival at the University of Maine's Orono campus, and while the compensation for their joint appearance isn't huge, it's perfectly adequate. Since he has an expense account, Phil has splurged and rented a Cadillac from Hertz at the Portland Jetport, where he met her plane. Pauline jeered at this, said she always knew he was a plastic hippie, but she does it gently. He wasn't a hippie, but he was a genuine whatever he was, and she knows it, as he knows that her osteoporotic bones have enjoyed the ride. Now a picnic. Tonight they'll have a catered meal, but the food will be a lukewarm, sauce-covered mess of mystery supplied by the cafeteria in one of the college commons. Beige food is what Pauline calls it. Visiting poet food is always beige. And in any case, it won't be served until eight o'clock with some cheap yellowish-white wine seemingly created to saw at the guts of semi-retired alcohol abusers such as themselves— this meal is nicer, and iced tea is fine. Phil even indulges the fantasy of leading her by the hand to the high grass behind the bathrooms once they've finished eating, like in that old Van Morrison song, and, ah, uh, ah, uh, but no. Elderly poets whose sex drives are now permanently stuck in first gear— should not chance such a potentially ludicrous sight of assignation, especially poets of long, rich, and varied experience who now know that each time is apt to be largely unsatisfactory and each time may well be the last time. Besides, Phil thinks, I've already had two heart attacks. Who knows what's up with her? Pauline thinks, 
not after sandwiches and potato salad, not to mention custard pie, but perhaps tonight. It is not out of the question. She smiles at him and takes the last item from the hamper. It's a New York Times, bought at the same Augusta convenience store where she got the rest of the picnic things, checked cloth and iced tea, bottle included. As in the old days, they flip for the art section. In the old days, Phil, who won the National Book Award for Burning Elephants in 1970, always called tails, and won far more times than the odds said he should. Today he calls heads, and wins again. Why, you snot, she cries, and hands it over. They eat. They read the divided paper. At one point she looks at him over a forkful of potato salad and says... I still love you, you old fraud. Phil smiles. The wind blows the gone-to-seed dandelion puff of his hair. His scalp shines gauzily through. He's not the young man who once came roistering out of Brooklyn, broad-shouldered as a longshoreman and just as foul-mouthed. But Pauline can still see the shadow of that man who was so full of anger, despair, and hilarity. "'I love you, too, Polly,' he says. "'We're a couple of old crocs,' she says, and bursts into laughter. "'Once she had sex with a king and a movie star at pretty much the same time on a balcony "'while Maggie May played on the gramophone, Rod Stewart singing in French. "'Now the woman the New York Times once called "'America's greatest living female poet lives in a walk-up in Queens.' doing poetry readings in tank towns for dishonorable honorariums and eating al fresco in rest areas. We're not old, he says. We're young, my baby. <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? Well, look at this, he says. And he holds out the first page of the art section. She takes it and sees a photograph. It is a dried-up string of a man wearing a straw hat and a smile. Nonagenarian woke to publish new book by Motoko Rich. By the time they reach the age of 94, if they do, most writers have retired long ago, not Herman Woke, author of such famous novels as The Cane Mutiny, 1951, and Marjorie Morningstar, 1955. Many of those who remember the TV miniseries presentations of his exhaustive World War II novels, The Winds of War, 1971, and War and Remembrance, 1978, are now drawing Social Security themselves. It's a retirement premium Woke became eligible for in 1980. Woke, however, is not done. He published a well-reviewed surprise novel, A Hole in Texas, a year shy of his 90th birthday, and expects to publish a book-length essay called The Language God Talks next year. Is it his final word? I'm not prepared to speak on that subject one way or another, Woke said with a smile. The ideas don't stop just because one is old. The body weakens, but the words never do. When asked about his... Continued on page 19. As she looks at that old, seamed face, beneath the rakishly tilted straw hat, Pauline feels the sudden sting of tears. The body weakens, but the words never do, she says. That's lovely. <laughs> Have you ever read him? Phil asks. 
Marjorie Morningstar in my youth. It's an annoying hymn to virginity, but I was swept away in spite of myself. Have you? I tried young blood hawk, but couldn't finish it. Still, he's in there pitching. He's old enough to be our father. <laughs> he folds the paper and puts it into the picnic basket. Below them, light traffic on the turnpike runs beneath a high September sky, full of fair weather clouds. Before we get back on the road, do you want to do swapsies, like in the old days? She thinks about it, then nods. Many years have passed since she listened to someone else read one of her poems. The experience is always a little dismaying, like having an out-of-body experience. But why not? <laughs> they have the rest area to themselves. In honor of Harmon Woke, who's still in there pitching, my work folder's in the front pocket of my carry bag. You trust me to get through your things? She gives him her old, slanted smile, then stretches into the sun with her eyes closed, relishing the heat. Soon the days will turn cold, but now there is heat. You can go through my things all you want, Philip. She opens one eye in a reverse wink that is amusingly seductive. Explore to your heart's content. I'll keep that in mind, he says, and goes back to the Cadillac he has rented for them. <laughs> Poets in a Cadillac, she thinks. The very definition of absurdity. For a moment she watches the cars rush by, then she picks up the art section and looks again at the narrow, smiling face of the old scribbler, still alive, perhaps at this very moment looking up at the high, blue, September sky with his notebook open on a patio table and a glass of Perrier or wine if his stomach will still stand it near to hand. If there is a God, Polly Enslin thinks, she can occasionally be very generous. She waits for Phil to come back with her work folder and one of the steno pads he favors for composition. They will play swapsies. Tonight they may play other games. And once again she tells herself it is not out of the question. Three. Sitting behind the wheel of the Chevy van, Brenda feels like she's in the cockpit of a jet fighter. Everything's digital. There's a satellite radio with a GPS screen above it. When she backs up, the GPS turns into a TV monitor so that you can see what's behind you. Everything on the dashboard shines. That new car smell fills the interior. Why not? With only 750 miles on the odometer? <laughs> She has never in her life been behind the wheel of a motor vehicle with such low mileage. You can push buttons on the control stock to show you your average speed, how many miles per gallon you're getting, how many gallons you've got left. The engine makes hardly any noise at all. The seats up front are twin buckets upholstered in bone-white material that looks like leather. The shocks are like butter. In back is a pop-down TV screen with a DVD player. The Little Mermaid won't work because, truth, Jasmine's three-year-old spread peanut butter all over the disc at some point, but they're all content with Shrek, even though all of them have seen it like a billion times. The thrill is watching it while they're on the road, driving. 
Freedom is asleep in her car seat between Freddie and Glory. Delight, Jasmine's six-month-old, is asleep in Jasmine's lap, but the other five cram together in the two back seats, watching, entranced. Their mouths are hanging open. Jasmine's Eddie is picking his nose, and Eddie's older sister, Rosellen, has got drool on her sharp little chin, but at least they're quiet and not beating away at each other. For once, they are hypnotized. Brenda should be happy. She knows she should. Kids are quiet. The road stretches ahead of her like an airport runway. She's behind the wheel of a brand new van, and the traffic is light, especially once they leave Portland behind. The digital speedometer reads 70, and this baby hasn't even broken a sweat. Nonetheless, that grayness has begun to creep over her again. The van isn't hers, after all. She'll have to give it back. Foolish expense, really, because what's at the far end of this trip up in Mars Hill? Food brought in from the Roundup restaurant, where where she used to work when she was in high school and still had a figure. Hamburgers and fries, covered with plastic wrap. The kids splashing in the pool before and maybe after. At least one of them will get hurt and ball, maybe more. And Glory will complain that the water is too cold, even if it isn't. Glory always complains. She will complain her whole life. Brenda hates that whining and likes to tell Glory it's her father coming out. <laughs> but the truth is, the kid gets it from both sides. Poor kid. <laughs> all of them, really, all poor kids. Headed into poor lives. She looks to her right, hoping Jazz will say something funny and cheer her up, and is dismayed to see that Jasmine is crying. Silent tears well up in her eyes and shine on her cheeks. In her lap, Baby Delight sleeps on, sucking one of her fingers. It's her comfort finger, and all blistered down the inside. Once Jazz slapped her good and hard when she saw Dee sticking it in her mouth, but... What good is slapping a kid that's only six months old? Might as well slap a door. But sometimes you do it. Sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes you don't want to help it. Brenda's done it herself. What's wrong, girl? Brenda asks. Nothing. Never mind me. Just watch you driving. Behind them, Donkey says something funny to Shrek, and some of the kids laugh. Not Glory, though. She's nodding off. Come on, Jazz. Tell me. I'm your friend. Nothing, I said. Jazz leans over the sleeping infant. Delight's baby seat is on the floor. Resting in it on a pile of diapers is the bottle of Allen's they stop for in South Portland before hitting the turnpike. Jazz has only had a couple of sips, but this time she takes two good, long swallows before putting the cap back on. The tears are still running down her cheeks. Nothing. Everything. <laughs> comes to the same either way you say it. That's what I think. Is it Tommy? Is it your bro? <laughs> Jazz laughs angrily. They'll never give me a cent of that money. Who am I kidding? Ma'll blame it on Dad because that's easier for her. But she feels the same. It'll mostly be gone anyway. What about you? Will your folks really give you something? Yeah, sure, I think so. Well, yeah. Probably. Like $40, a bag and a half's worth of groceries, two bags, if she uses the coupons in Uncle Henry's swap or sell-it guide. Just, just the thought of 
flipping through that raggy little cheap magazine, the, the poor people's Bible, and getting the ink on her fingers causes the grayness around her to thicken. The afternoon is beautiful, more like summer than September, but a, but a world where you have to depend on Uncle Henry's is a gray world, Brenda thinks. How did we end up with all these kids? Wasn't I letting Mike Higgins cop a feel of me out behind the metal shop just yesterday? Bully for you, Jasmine says, and snorks back tears. My folks will have three new gasoline toys in the dooryard, then plead poverty. And do you know what my dad will say about the kids? Don't let them touch anything. <laughs> That's what he'll say. Well, maybe he'll be different, Brenda says. Better. He's never different and never better, Jasmine says. And he never will be. In the back seat, Rosellen is drifting off. She tries to put her head on her brother Eddie's shoulder, and he punches her in the arm. She rubs it and begins to snivel, but pretty soon she's watching Shrek again. The drool is still on her chin. Brenda thinks it makes her look like an idiot, which she pretty close to is. I don't know what to say, Brenda says. We'll have some fun anyway. Red roof girl, swimming pool. Yeah, and some guy knocking on the wall at one in the morning telling me to shut my kids up like, you know, I want Dee awake in the middle of the night because all those stinking teeth are coming in all at once. She takes another slug from the coffee brandy bottle then holds it out to Brenda. Brenda knows better than to take it to risk her license, but no cops are in sight. And if she did lose her ticket, how much would she really be out? The car was Tim's. He took it when he left. And it was a half-dead beater anyway, a Bondo and Chicken Wire special. No great loss there. Besides, there's that grayness. She takes the bottle and tips it just a little sip, but the brandy's warm and nice. A shaft of dark sunlight, so she takes another one. They're closing the roll around at the end of the month, Jasmine says, taking the bottle back. Jazzy, no! Jazzy, yes! She stares straight ahead at the unrolling road. Jack finally went broke. The writing's been on the wall since last year, so there goes that ninety a week. She drinks. In her lap, delight stirs, then goes back to sleep with her comfort finger plugged in her gob, where, Brenda thinks, some boy like Mike Higgins will want to put his dick not all that many years from now. And she'll probably let him. I did. Jazz did, too. Just how things go. Behind them, Princess Fiona is now saying something funny, but none of the kids laugh. They're getting glassy. Even the older kids, Eddie and Freddie. Names like a TV sitcom joke. The world is gray, Brenda says. She didn't know she was going to say those words until she hears them come out of her mouth. Jasmine looks at her, surprised. That's right, she says. Now you're getting with the program. Brenda says, pass me that bottle. Jasmine does. Brenda drinks some more, then hands it back. Okay, enough of that. Jasmine gives her her old sideways grin, the one Brenda remembers from study hall on Friday afternoons. It looks strange below her wet cheeks and bloodshot eyes. You sure? Brenda doesn't reply, but she pushes the accelerator a little deeper with her foot. Now the digital speedometer reads... 80. Four. You first, Pauline says. All at once, 
she feels shy, afraid to hear her words coming out of Phil's mouth. Sure, they will sound booming yet false, like dry thunder. But she has forgotten the difference between his public voice, declamatory and a little corny, like the voice of a movie attorney in a summing up to the jury scene, and the one he uses when he's with just a friend or two and hasn't had anything to drink. It is a softer, kinder voice, and she is pleased to hear her poem coming out of his mouth. No, more than pleased, she is grateful. He makes it sound far better than it is. Shadows print the road with black lipstick kisses. Decaying snow in farmhouse fields shines like cast-off bridal dresses. The rising mist turns to gold dust. The clouds boil apart, and a phantom disk seems to race behind them. It bursts through. For five seconds it could be summer, and I seventeen with flowers in the lap of my dress. He puts the sheet down. She looks at him, smiling a little, but anxious. He nods his head. It's fine, dear, he says. Fine enough. Now, you. She opens the stenopad, finds what appears to be the last poem, pages through four or five scribbled drafts. She knows how he works. And she goes on until she comes to a version not in mostly illegible cursive, but in small, neat printing. She shows it to him, Phil nods, then turns to look at the turnpike. All of this is very nice. But they will have to go soon. They don't want to be late. He sees a bright red van coming. It's going fast. She begins. Five. Brenda sees a horn of plenty spilling rotten fruit. Yes, she thinks that's just about right. Thanksgiving for fools. Freddy will go for a soldier, fight in foreign lands the way Jasmine's brother Tommy did. Jasmine's boys, Eddie and Truth, will do the same. They'll own muscle cars when and if they come home, and if gas is still available twenty years from now. The girls... They'll go with boys. They'll give up their virginity while game shows play on TV. They'll have babies and fry meat in skillets and put on weight, same as she and Jasmine did. They'll smoke a little dope and eat a lot of ice cream, the cheap stuff from Walmart. Maybe not Rosellen, though. Something is wrong with Rosellen. She'll need to go to the special ed classes. She'll still have drool on her sharp little chin when she's in the eighth grade, same as now. Seven kids will beget seventeen, and the seventeen will beget seventy, and the seventy will beget two hundred. She can see a ragged fool's parade marching into the future, some wearing jeans that show the ass of their underwear, some wearing heavy metal T-shirts, some wearing gravy-spotted waitress uniforms, some wearing stretch pants from Kmart that have little maiden Paraguay tags sewn into the seams of the roomy seats. She can see the mountain of Fisher-Price toys they will own that will later be sold at yard sales, which was where most were bought in the first place. They will buy the products they see on TV and go in debt to the credit card companies, as she did and will again, because the pick four was a fluke. And she knows it. Worse than a fluke, really, a tease. Life, 
is basically a rusty hubcap lying in a ditch at the side of the road, and life goes on. She will never again feel like she's sitting in the cockpit of a jet fighter. This is as good as it gets. Her ship will not come in. There are no boats for nobody, and no camera is filming her life. This is reality, not a reality show. Shrek is over, and all the kids are asleep, even Eddie. Rosellen's head is once more on Eddie's shoulder. She's snoring like an old woman. She has red marks on her arms because sometimes she can't stop scratching herself. Jasmine screws the cap on the bottle of Allen's and drops it back into the baby seat in the footwell. In a low voice, she says, When I was five, I believed in unicorns. So did I, Brenda says. She looks at Jasmine. I wonder how fast this thing goes. Jasmine looks at the road ahead. They flash past a blue sign that says rest area one mile. She sees no traffic northbound. Both lanes are entirely theirs. Well, let's find out, Jasmine says. The numbers on the speedometer rise from 80 to 85, then 87. There's still some room left between the accelerator pedal and the floor. All the kids are sleeping. Here's the rest area, coming up fast. Brenda sees only one car in the parking lot. Looks like a fancy one, a Lincoln, maybe a Cadillac. I could have rented one of those, she thinks. I had enough money, but too many kids. Couldn't fit them all in. Story of her life, really. She looks away from the road. She looks at her old friend from high school, who ended up living just one town away. Jasmine is looking back at her. The van, now doing almost a hundred miles an hour, begins to drift. Jasmine gives a small nod and then lifts Dee, cradling the baby against her big breasts. Dee's still got her comfort finger in her mouth. Brenda nods back. She pushes down harder with her foot, trying to find the van's carpeted floor. It's there, and she lays the accelerator pedals softly against it. Six. Stop, Polly, stop! He reaches out and grabs her shoulder with his bony hands, startling her. She looks up from his poem and sees him staring at the turnpike. His mouth is open, and behind his glasses, his eyes appear to be bulging out almost far enough to touch the lenses. She follows his gaze in time to see a red van slide smoothly from the travel lane into the breakdown lane and from the breakdown lane across the rest area entrance ramp. It doesn't turn in. It's going far too fast to turn in. It crosses, doing at least 90 miles an hour, and plows into the slope just below them where it hits a tree. She hears a loud, toneless bang and the sound of breaking glass. The windshield disintegrates. Glass pebbles sparkle for a moment in the sun, and she thinks blasphemously, beautiful. The tree shears the van into two ragged pieces. Something, Phil Henri can't bear to believe it's a child, is flung high into the air and comes down in the grass. The van's gas tank begins to burn, and Pauline screams. He gets to his feet and runs down the slope, vaulting over the shake-pole fence like the young man he once was. These days, his failing heart is seldom far from his mind, but as he runs down to the burning pieces of the van, he never even thinks of it. Cloud shadows roll across the field, then across the woods beyond. Wildflowers nod their heads. He stops twenty yards from the gasoline funeral pyre, the heat baking his face. He sees what he knew he would see, 
no survivors, but he never imagines so many non-survivors. He sees blood on the grass. He sees a shatter of taillight glass like a patch of strawberries. He sees a severed arm caught in a bush in the flames. He sees a melting baby seat. He sees shoes. Pauline comes up beside him. She's gasping for breath. The only thing wilder than her hair are her eyes. Don't look, he says. What's that smell, Phil? That's, what's that, that smell? Burning gas and rubber, he says, although that's probably not the smell she's talking about. Don't look. Go back and do you have your cell phone? Yes, of course I have. Go back and call 911. Don't look at this. You don't want to see this. He doesn't want to see it either, but cannot look away. How many? He can see the bodies of at least three children, one adult, probably a woman, but he can't be sure. Yet so many shoes and all the clothes. He can see a DVD package. What if I can't get through, she asks. He points to the smoke, then to three or four cars that are already pulling over. Getting through won't matter, he says, but try. She starts to go, then turns back. She's crying. Phil, how many... I don't know. A lot. Go on, Polly. Some of them might still be alive. You know better, she says through her sobs. Damn thing was going too fast. She begins trudging back up the hill, halfway to the rest area parking lot. More cars are pulling in now. A terrible idea crosses her mind and she looks back. Sure, she will see her old friend and lover lying in the grass himself, perhaps clutching his chest, perhaps unconscious. But he's on his feet, cautiously circling the blazing left half of the van. As she watches, he takes off his natty sport jacket with the patches on the elbow. He kneels and covers something with it, either a person or a part of a person. And then he goes on. Climbing the hill, she thinks that all their efforts to make beauty out of words is an illusion— or a joke played on children who have selfishly refused to grow up. Yes, probably that. Children like that, she thinks, deserve to be pranked. As she reaches the parking lot, still gasping for breath, she sees the Times Art section flipping lazily through the grass on the breath of a light breeze and thinks, never mind Herman Woke is still alive and writing a book about God's language, Herman Woke believes that the body weakens, but the words never do. So that's all right, isn't it? A man and a woman rush up. The woman raises her own cell phone and takes a picture with it. Pauline Enslin observes this without much surprise. She supposes the woman will show it to her friends later. Then they will have drinks and a meal and talk about the grace of God, God's grace— looks intact every time it's not you. "'What happened?' the man shouts into her face. Down below them a skinny old poet is happening. He's now naked to the waist. He has taken off his shirt to cover one of the other bodies. His ribs are a stack outlined against white skin. He kneels and spreads the shirt. He raises his arms into the sky, then lowers them and wraps them around his head. Pauline is also a poet, and as such feels capable of answering the man in the language God speaks. What the fuck does it look like? she says. For 
Owen King. And thank you, Mr. King. Herman Woke is Still Alive first appeared in the Atlantic magazine in May 2011. You know a lot about Mr. King. You know his books uh, that he used to write under the name Richard Bachman. You know several great films have been crafted from some of his books and stories. Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, Stand By Me, it goes on. And you know that several very good films have come out of the same cornucopia, uh, some that aren't necessarily all that good. I think he'd agree. One thing I would like to mention, though, despite the fact that you know a lot about his writing, you may not know that he and his wife Tabitha do things with all that money that piles up as a result of a brilliant career as one of the world's best writers. The Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation supports uh, a great deal of good efforts, the Kings are solid members of their community. They give to the library, schools. They contribute to help support adult literacy. The Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that promotes strengthening and supporting communities and draws upon, and I'm quoting here from their mission statement, the values and spirituality of the founders. The Foundation has a special interest in organizations and people who have less recourse to usual channels of resources, focusing on community-based initiatives in the state of Maine only. Well, that's it. With this week and last week's shows, we've heard all six of 2011 Stoker-nominated stories. The awards will be handed out next week, next Friday, in fact, I'm looking forward to hearing who takes home the little brown house. I won't be there, unfortunately, in Salt Lake City. I've got other things that I've got to do, but uh, I'm wishing all the best to everyone. I've got my ideas about who the winners are going to be, but I'll just, I'll just keep them to myself. I want to thank everyone who helped put this effort together. Tony Smith in England, uh, Harry Markoff in Bulgaria, all of you, everywhere, and thanks to the authors who've let us have the use of their work. Best wishes to every one of you. But as mentioned before, you don't need luck. You've got your talent. Well, I hope you've enjoyed these two shows and hope to see you again next week. Same time, same place. Well, for me, it's always here in the nook. For you, it's wherever and whenever you find comfort and safety. I hope you'll stop by the show site, by our Facebook page, and let us know what you think. So, scoot on home now. Stay in the light. It's almost summer, and twilight is stretching deeper into the night. Still, it's, it's still dark out there, and it's unpredictable. So, when you get home, lock the door, snuggle down into your sheets, Close your eyes and have pleasant dreams. Mm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.